Welcome to Managing IP's Corner Office podcast. I'm Patrick Wingrove, America's editor, and joining me today is Heath Hogland, Vice President for IP and Standards at Dolby. Dolby is, of course, a well-known audiovisual company that licenses its technology to electronics companies. Uh, Heath, who is based in San Francisco, uh, has been at the company for just under 15 years. He has global responsibility for patents, trademarks, and copyright in his role and for the strategic development of Dolby's patent portfolio, among other things. We'll be covering a few topics today, but the main subject we'll be covering, of course, will be licensing. Uh, Heath, great to have you here. Thanks. Great to be here. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, to start, I mean, let's talk about you. Um, how did you get into IP? Uh, thanks. You know, um, it goes a long way back. I originally, uh, when I started out my sort of academic career, uh, was interested in becoming a judge, actually. And so on the path to go to law school, I took a personal interest in engineering just because of the sort of the technology and the practical usefulness of it. I ended up going through a graduate school program um, that coincidentally focused on audio technology. So sort of led into a good fit uh, for me at Dolby. Fantastic. Do you have any plans to pursue being a judge in the future? <laughs> you know, I think that's, uh, I, I would be open to it, actually. It's not something I think about anymore. I have uh, definitely immersed myself into the IP world. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And why did you go to Dolby? Yeah, you know, um, the, another great question. You know, Dolby's a really unique place. You know, first, the technology is fantastic and, um, you know, personally a good fit for me. It's uh, something I really am uh, interested in. But, you know, there's a lot of companies where uh, intellectual property is really important to the underlying business. For for Dolby, intellectual property is is absolutely core. It's core to really everything about our business, including, you know, revenue generation. We, you know, absolutely rely on our intellectual property coverage, you know, as the primary way that we generate revenue. So it's, you know, fairly unique in that sense. You know, in terms of your professional life, it creates a really, you know, unique place because, you know, throughout the company, there's an appreciation for the importance um, and significance of IP to our business. Absolutely. And from what I understand, when you say that IP is core to your business, that's not just patents, is it? It's trademarks as well. Trademarks and copyrights, absolutely, to you know, various parts of our business. Our brand is super important. We've had the good fortune of you know, really you know, significant consumer awareness. And you know, one of the neat things is that our brand ends up being associated with the things that people really enjoy. Like when you go to a movie, you see our brand. When you go to buy a new television or some other consumer electronic equipment, you, you, know, you see our brand. So it's you know, associated with things that are really positive for consumers. Indeed, indeed. Right. And along those lines as well, how many people do you manage in your current role? Uh, my team overall is uh, is about 50. Most are located in the Bay Area and most are IP professionals, patent attorneys and uh, paralegals and things like that. Um, we also, though, have attorneys, you know, based in other geographies in India, China, the UK, who, you know, are really uh, instrumental in helping us, you know, navigate both the uh, local IP systems and courts. And one of the other unique things about us is that uh, for our IP group is we actually have um, a meaningful uh, patent prosecution group that we operate in Amsterdam, uh, who's, which is responsible for our European patent prosecution. So it's spread out pretty well. We also, in my team, have um, a number of engineers who are responsible for 
participating and managing our standards-related activities. So pretty diverse group, just to say it that way. Excellent. And why do you have a dedicated prosecution team in Amsterdam, or is that something you have uh, no, that's a unique thing. And um, part of the reason is we, you know, we have a great deal of respect for the European Patent Office. We think they do a really fantastic job. They have, you know, sort of lifelong examiners. Many of them are, you know, are PhDs. And so we see the European Patent Office as a, you know, really high quality, you know, a, a number of other ones in the world, of course, are as well. We see that one in particular as a, you know, very high quality patent office. And it's also a patent office that is, you know, respected by other jurisdictions. And so we focus our early prosecution. We try to uh, generally get, you know, early examination in the European Patent Office and then use those results to both help us, you know, inform us, you know, on the, you know, the strength of our, you know, particular patent application and also, you know, where we're successful to leverage the success that we have in the European Patent Office to make the prosecution in other jurisdictions go more uh, smoothly. Excellent. Well, we have a lot of subscribers at the EPO, so I know they'll be very, <laughs> very happy to hear that. All right. And that brings us on to your um, firm's licensing strategy. So who does Dolby tend to license to? Yeah. So that's a you know, neat question. And it's, um, you know, really goes back all the way to the beginning of the, the company when Ray Dolby founded the company, you know, over 50 years ago now, he had made an invention related to, you know, noise suppression technology. And at the time, he really had, you know, a number of choices. But um, one was to enter, you know, the market with cassette players, you know, tape players. And the other was to license this technology to the existing uh, manufacturers. And that's the path he chose. And that's been, you know, our primary business model now ever since. We have other businesses as well, but but our primary business remains, you know, licensing our technology to consumer electronics manufacturers, all the, you know, the big brands that you see um, when you go buy a new TV or a stereo system or or whatever. Indeed. And how's that changed very much over the years did you for example used to license a lot more to um cinema companies and then moved on to uh, consumer electronics or has it always been a pretty steady um selling to consumers yeah it's been you know the, a couple things about it i mean we definitely have had for you know the history of the company we've definitely had a very strong relationship with the theaters for you know in a number of ways but the you know the primary revenue source has been through licensing to consumer electronics companies. The cinema is really, you know, a great thing because it's, it, it, you know, it's in a way a showcase for some of our, you know, next generation technologies. If you go back, you know, I think Star Wars was one of the original movies that did uh, Dolby Stereo. And, um, and then later the, you know, surround sound was introduced into the movies as well. It has been a showcase uh, more than anything of our Dolby technology. Wonderful. And, um, what sorts of technologies do you tend to license? Or, or to put it another way, what sort of technologies are you working on at the moment, as, as far as you can tell us? Obviously, I realize you can't wait to tell us everything. Sure. We definitely focus on entertainment-related technologies, primarily, you know, audio and video. And, um, you know, and as a company, our, you know, one of our big objectives is to make, you know, creative content um, more immersive to the consumer. And, you know, if you go into the marketplace now, uh, a days, there's two real driving technologies. We have Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision. You can, you know, experience both of those technologies in movie theaters or in your home. Dolby Atmos is cool because it's sort of a different format for audio that allows for the placement of, you know, unique, discrete audio objects in space. And so it allows a, you know, movie creator or a musician 
to you know locate something very precisely in space and when you hear the the playback of it is really dramatic to to be able to place because that's what you do in your real life is to place a particular object in a particular location in space so it's um makes you feel like you're part of a you know a really alive uh more of a live experience and um and on the video side our dolby vision is you know the idea is to make better pixels and so whether you have a you know, a 2K or a 4K TV or whatever you have, you know, Dolby Vision brings a really extraordinary color, contrast, and brightness to your screen. It's um, it's something that you really have to experience. And if you haven't had a chance to do it, I'd uh, certainly encourage you to. It's it's pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. Certainly, I've experienced the surround sound you were just talking about. It's excellent. And how much of the company's turnover comes from this licensing, then, can you share a, a rough figure? You know, as a company, we report our licensing revenue, our total company revenues, you know, over a billion, about 1.3 billion. And, you know, the substantial majority of that also over a billion is from, is from licensing. As a company, we have, you know, sort of two buckets of licensing. One is our Dolby branded licensing and the other is our patent licensing. Um, our Dolby branded licensing is the stuff that we were just talking about, like our Dolby Atmos or Dolby Vision, and um, and that is uh, you know the the majority of our licensing revenue. But we also um, generate a very significant part um, of our overall licensing revenue from patent licensing, and that's um, licensing that we do primarily through patent pools. So for you know audio and video codecs, um, it's uh, you know various you know programs to license. Our, uh, our patents for those technologies. Indeed. Excellent. And I'm glad you mentioned patent pools as well, because I know this is something we've spoken about in the past. And I just wanted to ask, uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? What's, are patent pools becoming more important in your world at the moment? Uh, I would certainly say yes. And, um, and, you know, they don't work for every technology, but there's, you know, certainly been some real success stories. We participate in one of the audio uh, programs um, that's run through VIA Licensing, uh, which is a Dolby subsidiary, which runs a pool for AAC. It's the audio codec that's used, you know, for basically for, you know, lots and lots of music and other uh, applications. But it's been a really successful, healthy program. Attracts, you know, really almost all of the relevant IP owners and, um, you know, has a licensee list that's, you know, on the order of a thousand licensees long. You know, there's other programs, another one on the video side, we participate in MPEG-LA's AVC program, all same, you know, same kind of story. It's been enormously successful attracting, you know, you know, a substantial majority of the, of the patent owners and also attracting, you know, literally a thousand licensees. So there's definitely been some real success stories uh, for patent pools and certainly see that going forward, especially in the audio and video codec space. But what I understand is that there have been some challenges associated with patent pools as well. Um, can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, certainly the one that um, has, uh, you know, drawn some attention has been around um, around HEVC. And I think, you know, you know, in fairness, that, you know, there are some growing pains with, you know, a new technology and, and you know, the market sort of struggling to find the right balance. There were, you know, three, MPEG-LA came out with a pool first, and that pool maybe was a little bit um, more favorable for uh, implementers. Uh, Velos, you know, another program that came out was maybe a little bit more favorable to licensors and um and then there's you know the third program which is uh, hvc uh, advance or now access advance 
um, which, you know, sort of in the middle of those two. And there certainly was a market, you know, struggle to find, you know, which of those programs would ultimately be successful. You know, there's been enormous consolidation now. A number of the MPEG-LA licensors have left and joined the Access Advanced program. Similarly, some of the Velos members have left and at least one of them has joined the, you know, Access Advanced program. So, you know, it's taken some time, but it's consolidating into one program that now has, you know, like uh, some of the other successful programs in the past, has a substantial, substantial majority of the of the relevant patents and also is, you know, growing a very significant licensee list. So there, you know, definitely was some, were some growing pains with that particular technology and sorting out the IP landscape. But, you know, sometimes that, 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 that just takes time to work out. And it seems like it's, you know, that's now moved to, uh, you know, a pretty good place. I was going to say, so it's reached a uh, state of harmony now, would you say? Uh, I think that it's almost, I wouldn't quite go all the way to harmony, but definitely, um, you're def- it's definitely in a bit uh, better place. And I think it's kind of clear, the market consolidation is clear and, um, and you know, the, the path going forward. And I think, you know, one of the other sort of interesting ones is that the next generation uh, codec is VVC and there's, you know, work in the access advance to, uh, extend or to um, rather launch a program for VVC and have um, there, of course, are overlapping patents. So there's a bridging uh, agreement, so to speak, that would, um, you know, allow a licensee to take um, a license to both technologies um, and um, and pay, a, you know, a simplified royalty rate. Um, so there's, you know, definitely a path forward and, you know, look forward to seeing that, uh, you know, continue on the same path of consolidation with that, uh, next generation video, uh, codec. Good, good. I'm glad to hear. All right. And speaking of turmoil, and I don't know how much experience you will have had with this in Dolby and I'll be interested to find out, but, um, what do you think about the current SEP landscape? Is it, is it too aggressive? Um, you know, I certainly hear that, um, you know, uh, on occasion, I would say, at least in the, you know, in the spaces where we're active, you know, particularly around the audio and video codecs, I would not agree with that characterization. If anything, what's, I mean, somewhat disappointing to us is that we see, even for those very successful programs that I mentioned, like AAC or AVC, we still see companies, um, you know, that decide to hold out, you know, for whatever reason and, you know, require, you know, active litigation in order to, um, you know, drive some companies to, you know, to a license for technologies where the, you know, pool programs are extraordinarily well accepted. So, um, so at least in the codec space, I think we, we see maybe the opposite problem, which is more around the holdouts. Ah, okay, I see. Yes, okay, that is a, that is a different sort of problem. And um, so what would you change about the SAP landscape broadly then if you could? Um, I guess the challenge really that I, you know, see is, you know, just about around finding acceptance of a, you know, the, the royalty rate really is what the, the, the biggest challenge. And, um, and so to me, you know, it's the, the thing that, um, you know, is obviously the most important point for both licensors and licensees. And so, you know, I don't have a good answer to, you know, or a good solution for this, but I think, you know, finding some process that um, helps licensors and licensees sort of converge around, an accepted royalty rate is something that I think would be very helpful overall, um, you know, for standardized technologies. Do you think there maybe needs to be a bit more transparency in the industry to facilitate that? The good thing about patent pools, I think patent pools generally do help a lot in creating a, you know, a measure of transparency, you know, so that's definitely one, you know, the one piece of it. 
But even beyond that is, you know, driving to acceptance of what, a, you know, what is a fair market rate, um, both from a licensor and a licensee's perspective. All right. And what are some of the big challenges for you in that area? I know you touched upon it a moment ago, but yes, what, what do you think? Yeah. So as I said, reluctant licensees are certainly one challenge. Um, you know, the court, you know, obviously, you know, courts and litigation, there's, you know, currently one of the hot topics is around the anti-suit injunctions. And that, you know, certainly is creating some uncertainty in the space. And it's a new, you know, it's a, it, frankly, it's a new wrinkle that hasn't, uh, you know, worked itself out all the way. I ultimately, you know, it doesn't make sense to have courts in different places telling each other what they can and cannot do. So there's definitely, um, you know, something has to change, uh, but that hasn't, you know, just hasn't played all the way out yet. I haven't heard about anti-anti-suit injunctions for a little while now. Is that petering out or are you still seeing some activity on that front? I guess we haven't seen new ones recently, but it's it feels like it's still an open topic. I can say that. All right. And do you see any solutions in the landscape to some of these challenges? Either, well, obviously, we mentioned patentables and transparency before, but uh, is there anything else that you would like to see happen more often to try and sort some of this? Yeah, again, I think, you know, the the patent pools are one of the, you know, really an important structure. And I guess one of the things that we see is, you know, where we have meaningful licensors and meaningful licensees collaborate on uh, new programs. I think that's where we see the best opportunity for success. And so I guess, yeah, from, from my perspective, that's, um, it's really in everybody's interest to work together and to create opportunities for, you know, the folks, you know, on both sides of the table to to reach, you know, consensus in a, and, and again, in a, you know, pools to have been the, the best mechanism for transparency and, um, and, you know, a number of things like that. Excellent. And what do you think about the idea of global friend rates as well? I think that's reared its head again recently. I can't remember exactly in what, but uh, I wanted to ask. Yeah, sure. I mean, that certainly is one of the other hot topics. And so I think it was a UK court first that declared the ability to set a global friend rate, you know, we certainly see that, you know, some of the Chinese courts now stepping into that. I think, you know, when you, when you sort of play it through, ultimately what happens is for patent enforcement, you have to go into individual countries, whether it's Germany or the U S or the UK or wherever it is. And so, um, and so I think for, in terms of setting a global friend rate, I mean, certainly courts can do that. I think the you know the question is whether other courts will see those rates as fair. So, for example, if a UK court sets a rate or a Chinese court sets a rate, when you you know actually go and enforce your your patents in Germany, for example, I think it matters you know what whether the German court will feel that or believe that the UK court or the Chinese court, in fact, set what is a you know a fair and reasonable rate, and so success uh, of a court setting a friend rate, a global friend rate, really is going to depend on whether other courts and other jurisdictions, you know, feel like they've done the, the right job or you reach the right outcome. Indeed. And would you agree with Colin Burse, who was the high court judge in, in the case we just mentioned um, on Wide Planet versus Huawei? Do, would you agree with him that it makes a lot more sense to do this um, make these deals or, or these set these rates in one place at one time as kind of a hybrid of contract and patent law rather than in the way that it's done uh, that you just said? I would say yes and no. I mean, the thing um, that, that you want is it, it, if it is in fact a fair process and 
um, and, you know, reaches a result that, you know, is seen as fair. I certainly think it's an efficient mechanism, um, you know, to have one court in one place set, you know, set what is a, a FRAND rate. But, you know, obviously what matters a lot to uh, licensors and licensees is that, you know, what that, that, that answer looks and feels, you know, right. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that takes time to mature, you know, just, a, you know, a judicial system or a process um, to, to setting, a, you know, what is a, a fair rate. Absolutely. All right. And moving away slightly from this talk then about licensing, I'm quite curious to hear your thoughts on the patent trial and appeal board at the moment. And, uh, and obviously, the recent announcement uh, to introduce the Restore America uh, Invents Act. Um, so what do you think about this? Uh, yeah, so I've been following it a little bit in terms of the Restore the American Events Act. I think one of the hottest topics there is around the director's or the PTO's discretion to deny institution of an IPR when um, when there's parallel litigation, and and the PTO has you know generally been denying institution where there is parallel litigation. I, I think that as I understand that uh, proposed legislation, it would take that discretion away. I wouldn't go quite that far. I think that the, um, you know, I think the director should still, and the PTO should have some uh, discretion in, in, to look and see where it makes sense to institute or where there's, you know, factors that counsel against it. However, I would say that, you know, at least personally, I, you know, fully support that the IPR process are an efficient and you know economical way to evaluate a validity challenge, and um, and so generally they, you know, in my view, should be instituted um, even where there is parallel litigation. But I wouldn't go quite so far as the proposed legislation and take the, all discretion away from the from the director. Okay, and of course we still don't have a USPTO director <laughs> yet. Speaking of which. So, <laughs> What do you think about the current race? Do you have any favorites? Uh, no, I'll stay out. I'll stay out of betting on that. But the uh, the one thing I would say is that uh, looking at it, you know, to to us, it's important to have you know somebody in the role who's balanced. I think you know for for that role to swing from one end of the spectrum to the other, um, you know, with the change of administration is really not helpful for the IP system. And so some balance to that. Um, you know, recognizing that, you know, our, our patent rights, you know, last for 20 years, we want to have, you know, some, you know, we want to avoid dramatic swings during the lifetime of a patent and um, create more certainty around, um, around those rights. Okay. Excellent. And what are your plans for the future at Dolby? Anything in the pipeline that you can tell us about? Uh, you know, we have um, one of the things, you know, I mentioned Dolby Atmos uh, earlier that, initially was released in the cinemas it's now attaching or you know growing as a medium for music and it's really cool it's really neat to see uh that technology applied there just you know it's just uh, it's just it's really cool even to see listen to uh remastered content in that format is is really neat and um yeah and the uh, i guess i just you know one um just you know quote our our founder um and that is that you know looking at the future um, you know, Ray's philosophy was, and it remains that for our company is that we don't go into er any area where we can't get a patent um, um, because um, because that respect for IP uh, continues um, to position us for success in the future. Excellent. Okay, that's great. And one last thing I wanted to ask you about, which was, what are your plans for remote working? 
in the future? Has the company <laughs> has the company set a policy, or is that something that you're doing uh, at a department level? Or can you tell me about it? So I live in the San Francisco, the Bay Area, and um, you know we have very very high vaccination rates. So th- you know things are starting to look better. Our office is not you know back fully open yet, but the company is now permitting folks to go in at least part time. And um, and so for me personally, I'm just starting on that process right now. Next uh, tomorrow, in fact, in fact, tomorrow will be my first day back in the office for about a year. Um, and so we're just starting to, you know, reintroduce ourselves to that environment. My goodness. Are you looking forward to it? Uh, for me personally, I think, yeah, the one, the thing that I'm looking forward to is to, you know, just start to see people again, our, our colleagues and, uh, folks we haven't seen, you know, almost for two years. It's, um, that's, I think, honestly, the part that I'm uh, most looking forward to. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with that. And that brings us to the end of our time. So Heath, thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate it and uh, thank you to everyone listening and uh, from managing ip goodbye thank you <laughs>